This is the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. Today, teaching minister Tim Peace will be teaching the message. My name's Tim, and I'm the teaching minister here, and uh, I get the opportunity to uh, bring the word. I don't know why I've got to do this. It's the most weak move I have. Anyway, uh, hey, I, I wanted to start off with a uh, story this morning that I might have said it in a sermon before or in like a student message before. You might not know it. If you've heard this before and you remember it, thank you. That It's really nice to know someone actually remembered something I preached on years ago because uh, I don't. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. So... I, I was thinking this week about the James passage that we're going to look at here in a moment as we continue on in our Wise Up series, and I started to think about this time that I, so I used to cut my, my grass at home. We had a riding lawnmower, and my grandma lived a couple houses down and across the street from us, so I would finish our lawn with the riding lawnmower, and then uh, without the uh, slow-moving vehicle sign, I would drive it down the road and then turn in and then start cutting my grandma's grass. And so uh, I, I had finished our lawn, I get, get to my grandma's lawn, I do the front yard first and then I move on to the backyard. And as it, as it were, I'm, I'm not like a, a professional lawnmower. So you know how great baseball diamonds look? My yard will never, ever, ever look like that. Actually, uh, just because I saw him in the room, when my wife and I had, had Leo, my buddy Mark actually came and cut our grass, and it did look like that one time, so thanks, Mark. Anyway, um, but when I cut it, it never, ever, ever, ever looks like that, partly because I tend to like to go around in like a circular pattern just to finish the, the lawn, so um, it's like I'm running track slowly. And so I'm, I'm cutting my grandma's lawn and I keep going around the perimeter and I happen to notice that as I start to take a left turn, because they're all left turns in my cutting, um, just like NASCAR, um, as I'm taking the turn, I, I happen to notice there is a gentleman next door that has got his, his push lawnmower out and he is starting to try to rev it up with the string. And I happen to notice that it's not starting. So I turn left again, I go around, I make my, my lines and I come back around and then I see that he's still struggling with it. I think, man, that stinks. I really wish this guy could get his lawnmower going. I keep going around, come back around. He's still struggling with it. So I decide this is a good time to pray. I just feel bad for this guy, I think. And so I start to pray, God, I feel really bad for this guy. He can't get his lawnmower going. Could you please just make his lawnmower start? I go around another turn. I come back around. This time he's fed up with the lawnmower. He goes into his house. I continue cutting the grass. Moments later, he comes back out. He starts to try it again. It still won't start. I pray again, God, please get this guy's lawnmower to go. Now, at some point, as I'm close to finishing cutting my grandma's lawn, a thought dawns on me. You know, this guy's got a push mower that clearly is on the fritz. And your lawnmower is a riding lawnmower, and it's working fine. 
you could go and cut this guy's grass. Keep going around. I finish up. And I drive home because I wanted to watch TV, okay? It was, it was a school night, okay? You have a little bit of grace. Okay, there's no grace that I should be given in this situation. Here's the deal. I was praying that God would work a miracle on this guy's lawnmower, which is funny to say out loud, it's still to this day. But I really wanted this guy, I, I think I wanted to see the lawnmower start because of my prayers, first and foremost. But secondly, if this guy's lawnmower had started, I would have had the satisfaction of seeing God do something and I wouldn't have had to be involved. Instead, though, what happened is I got to drive home as slowly as a riding lawnmower drives with a guilty conscience that if I had just taken a turn over to this guy's lawn, I could have cut his grass and his problem would have been at least momentarily fixed. And I didn't do it. I still remember that to this day. Now, this is the funniest thing, though. And this I didn't plan on sharing because uh, it didn't happen until Friday. I was cutting my grass on Friday with my push mower. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing completely falls apart. <laughs> and I had already planned to tell this story. And I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. Uh, I, did not, I did not look around to see if anyone was going to come to my aid because I was like, so now I, I stand before you years after being 16, 17 years old, whatever it was that I was, uh, with the full knowledge and understanding of how that guy must have felt. Uh, to not have his lawnmower work because I got about three-fourths of my front yard done and it looked really silly. I fortunately had um, a, a buddy that was willing to come and, and finish my lawn for me. So, because um, I, I, I sent it. Anyway, okay. Why do I tell you that story? Well, this morning, we're going to get into a famous passage from the letter of James. It's one that uh, theological geeks like myself uh, pour over, debate over, and aside from the debates that happens, it's actually kind of a scary passage because it, it questions faith. It questions what faith is all about. And I tell you that story about my prayer moment because I thought at that time as this teenage kid that my prayer, my, my words to God, my asking for a miracle on a lawnmower was some sort of act of faith by just saying words. And in reality, as I look at the passage that we're going to come to today, I realize that maybe that's not much faith at all. Maybe there's something deeper, maybe there's something more tangible to faith. And I think there is. So, I want you to open your Bibles or look at the screens or look at your TV screen online or look at your app. All the different ways we have Bibles to look at. Follow along with me in James chapter 2 as we read through verses 14 through 26. I will tell you, I'm going to read the first few verses and stop, and then I'm going to pick up the second uh, section. So getting from 14 through 17, this is what James writes. He says, what good is it? My brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but do not have works, can faith save you? 
If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Now, this is an interesting thing here. So James is, is creating a straw man argument here, which uh, in modern debate it would be a no-no. But he's, he's propped up this, this scenario that for most people in the church to whom he's writing probably would have said, oh, I would never do something like that, James. He creates this scenario where uh, someone walks in to their midst and they have no clothes, they have no food, they have nothing. And instead of supplying their needs and meeting their needs, uh, the, the people that see this person in this destitute situation simply give them this, this half-hearted greeting, go in peace, this, this whole idea of shalom. It's, it's, a, it's a very Jewish uh, send-off. It's like, uh, go in peace, shalom, uh, and keep warm and eat your fill. How is someone supposed to keep warm if they have no clothes, and how are they supposed to eat their fill when they have no food? That's the insanity of James's story here. But the more disconcerting part isn't even the part where he says that faith by itself with no works is dead. He asks this question, he says, can faith save you? And in the Greek, it's, it's actually more challenging than that. He actually says, can this sort of faith save you? Can this works-less faith save you? He calls into question whether or not faith lacking action is faith at all. And I don't know about you all, but as I think back to teenage Tim on his lawnmower, or if I even think about the way that I've thought through the years about faith, and maybe you are like me, faith is often a, a head proposition or maybe an emotional proposition. You think the right theological things. You check off the boxes to say that you agree with the faith statements. Maybe you got a gut feeling that, that you, you feel real good about God. The light's peeking through. Everything is, is rosy and, and that makes it all good. James challenges that actionless faith in this passage. And then he takes it a step further because he starts to use biblical examples in the second part of this passage that we have today uh, after challenging the church some more. So I want you to follow along with me uh, in James 2.18 through 26. He says, but someone will say, this is going to create another argument here. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Or you could flip this. I have, I have faith and you have works. Someone will, will say this. They'll make this dichotomy between the two. And James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, what faith apart from works is barren? or that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, 
and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. All right, so James is doing a lot more here. So first and foremost, the two examples that he uses, they're quite exceptional situations. I'm just going to tell you right now in the room, if you ever hear a voice that tells you to sacrifice your kid, go to the hospital. Sorry, did that make you uncomfortable? All right. Here's the thing. These are really exceptional circumstances here. We've got a situation where the guy that will become the patriarch of the people of God is called to go do something crazy. He has waited up until his old age to have this one child, and God, who has given him this child, is asking him to sacrifice him. Now, God, being good, is not going to let this come to fruition. But Abraham goes all the way to the altar with his boy. It's pretty crazy. How about the story of Rahab? Rahab, who shows up in the book of Joshua, She's a prostitute. James reminds us of that. She's a nobody. She's living on the outer skirts of Jericho. The spies are going to come in. The spies of the Israelites are going to come in and they're going to check out the place and see how they can ransack it to bring the city walls down. And what does Rahab do? Well, in her faithfulness to God and in her allegiance to God and with the people of God, she chooses to harbor the two spies, risking again her own life. In the case of Abraham, he's risked not only his son, but he's risked his most precious thing and his devotion to God. Rahab is going to risk her life and the life of those in her family in order to show allegiance to God. Again, two very, very exceptional stories. Why does James bring these stories up? Well, because they are exemplary of real faith in God, because it is faith in action. In fact, he even uses this in our English translations. It says, Abraham believed God. The word for believe is the same word for the word faith that he's been using throughout. That's just an English nuance that we have in our modern translations. So he's basically making the claim that Abraham is displaying faith. Rahab is displaying faith. And in his little analogy before he gets to those sections, he says, you might say, I have faith and you have works, or you have faith and I have works. We have this problem where we separate the two. There's faith on one hand and there's works, and they have nothing to do with one another. But what does James say? He's like, you show me your faith without your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. Again, teenager Tim on the motorcycle, or on the motorcycle, I don't even know on a motorcycle, I would die. Anyway, okay. Man, I don't know why I just said, my brain is messed up. Okay, on my lawnmower, the very slow-moving vehicle that I was driving back home after I didn't cut the guy's grass, he's getting a little bit uncomfortable by this passage here. Because I thought, 
that if I said a nice prayer and just trusted God that this guy's lawnmower would be fixed and everyone would go home happy for the day. But it turns out that the prayer that I prayed uh, turned into a, a call in the moment, an opportunity to put my faith into work, an opportunity to not take another left turn, but to go straight into the other person's yard and take care of their lawn. I already said, I've got two friends in this room that did that for me, and as uh, Mr. New in the Faith Teenage Tim, I didn't have any faith to muster up to even go and help another person. And here's the reality. We, we may be uncomfortable with this idea that faith and works go together, that, that works prove our faith, that action proves our faith. But the truth of the matter is that we know that that idea that the two don't go together is false. There's nobody in this room in our present circumstances as we think about which side of the aisle we're on, which team we're on, there's no one in here that wouldn't show their allegiance to something by some sort of act. Let's take our political climate right now. We all know that if you're on the right or the left, you have certain things that you must say, certain things you must do, certain things you must believe. And if you start to step toward that line in the middle, your side will cast you out. They'll question you. They'll say, no, you're on the other side. Or how about, let's, let's take a more, uh, since I got to talk about this this week on a little write-up I did, let's take uh, the novelty of sports. Like today, if I go home and I put on a Baltimore Ravens shirt, which would be just dumb, I don't own one anyway, but if I did and then I claimed to be a Bengals fan, you would all laugh me out of the room. Why? Because I'm a Bengals fan, which means I'm going to wear Bengals colors. I can't say I'm a Bengals fan and put on Ravens colors today? Come on. Or let's bring it closer to home. I like these little examples. Let's say my child is asking me for food. He's crawling around, he comes up to me, stands up, he pulls on my, the bottom of my pants and he starts rubbing his mouth. And let's say I'm watching the game and all I wanna do is watch the game. This has never happened before. I'm just making this up, I'm just kidding. And I say that I love my kid, but I say, and daddy's watching the game, you go get your food yourself. He's only 15 months old. You could question whether or not in that moment I love my kid. Now I know that sounds harsh, but let me prove it to you. In the Gospel of John, Jesus in chapter 14 verse 15 gives this little directive to his disciples in his farewell address to them. He says, if you love me, keep 
my commands. Now, Jesus said it, and we all like Jesus, so we think that's rather innocuous. But then, you know, I go to Matthew chapter 6, verse uh, 24, and Jesus says this. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, this is an interesting passage because we get caught up on the love-hate language here, but in, in the, the first century Jewish context, love and hate, the way it was used in that culture, is you can only pick one love. Anything that ends up in second place or further back is hated. Not in the, you're a hater because you didn't agree with me sort of sense, or gosh, you wanna attack me because you hate, no, not that kind of hate. It's saying that love in this most God-directed form can only go one place. The moment it goes somewhere else, you've elected to hate God in relationship to the thing that you love. That's the way that works. And so I'll bring up one more passage here. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39, Jesus says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So what's Jesus say? Love of God creates a, a situation where full devotion goes to God with all of your being, all of your being. Now here's the, the great thing about this is that last passage sounds really scary, except that elsewhere we end up learning in scripture that the failure to love people is also a failure to love God. You can see what Jesus is doing here. You can't say that you love God and, and not love people. That, that's in 1 John, you can look it up later. See, when I think about faith and I think of love of God, it's easy to think that that stops and that it ends with agreeing with some theological precept or having some good feeling about God. But the thing that I want you to remember from James today is this. Faith ain't a claim, it's the way you play the game. Faith ain't a claim, it's the way you play the game. Faith is always active in scripture. Faith isn't thinking the right things alone, it isn't feeling the right things, it is saying, God, I trust that what you say is good for me and good to do is good for me and good to do, and therefore I am going to do it. It means when you have a sense that you should go cut your neighbor's grass, that, that you do it. Now, I've learned this lately, so I want to close out by telling you um, as discreetly as I can, I had, a, I had a long conversation with a friend of mine about a week and a half or two weeks ago. And we were just catching up to see how one another's life was going. And as I said at the beginning of this sermon series, if you remember a few weeks back, it's been a crazy season for everybody. Life has been hectic. Life has been heavy. Life has been troublesome. 
And so we were kind of talking about this. And I was being honest about how things were going in life. The struggles and things. And my friend stopped me and he said, you know, because I've always wanted to use, you're, a, you're an academic geek and you're doing this dissertation thing. He's like, I've often heard people say that um, academic pursuit of the Bible tends to destroy people's faith. And I said, oh, I, was, I was like, are you, are, you, are you observing that with me? He goes, he goes, well, he goes, just as I'm hearing you talk about, you know, I'm, I'm used to uh, Christians, you know, using this kind of overcome language and, and you're kind of admitting that, that things aren't rosy and you're not giving this, this kind of positive outlook. And I finally told him that my faith is actually stronger today than it ever was at the early portion of my faith, or of, of, of my being a Christian. And I said, the reason that I know that is that despite the circumstances that are going on right now, there have been things that I've been asked to be a part of, asked to do, whether it was pastoral or, or whatnot, that though I did not want to do them, though I felt like it was just going to add another weight upon weight on the shoulder, I would pray to God and I would say, instead, God, do you want me to do this? Because isn't that the fun thing? We always know. I was just talking to our spiritual links group on a Thursday not too long ago. We love to ask God if we should do something when we know we should. Instead of even asking God whether I should follow through on this opportunity to serve a family that's grieving um, or whether it's uh, to show up for a friend that needs to have a conversation, instead I simply ask God, God, I don't know if I can add this but I know you want me to, so I'm going to ask that you give me the strength to do it. Now, here's the fun part. So I end up having a conversation with this buddy that asked me this, and we end up going and end up talking about his life, and he ends up opening up about a pretty severe family circumstance that he was dealing with. And, and we go on and on, and, and, and he's asking me, like, he kind of compares like why it is that he can um, easily exercise faith for people he doesn't know versus uh, coming to the aid of a family member that he, he just was really, really upset with. And so we go into this conversation. I listen. I end up giving him some, some scriptural counsel on the matter. We hug it out. I leave. About four days later, I get a text message from him that says, uh, hey, I just want you to know, I went and I had dinner with this family member the night that we talked, and it went really, really well, and I want to thank you for your bluntness. I have been in a season where I am lacking any energy to have those conversations. In fact, I admitted to Didi recently, he was checking in on me in my office. I said, Didi, I honestly don't even want to go talk to anybody else right now. But I've learned that faith isn't about what I claim. It's not about saying a magical prayer when someone's lawnmower is broken. It's simply trusting that what God is stirring on your heart to do, that you go do it. 
and that you trust not only that he can give you the strength when you are lacking it, but that he can do something good even if you feel like you're not good enough to do it. It's uncomfortable to be there for other people, especially if there is baggage between family members, especially if you don't feel like you're resource enough, especially if you don't feel like you have the energy enough. But the truth is, when it comes to faith, faith is always an actionable thing. You can find out more about us on the web at mtcarmelchurch.org.